Welcome back to the Act 2 podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I am Josh Hallman. And we have a guest with us today. Hey, guys. It's uh, David Levinson back, back with you. Thanks for having me once again. We talk about you all the time. I can't believe you keep letting me on. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're always with us in spirit anyways. As a reminder, Act 2 is a network support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This podcast is just one of the fun things we do, so thank you for joining us here. Please remember that the Christmas gift Josh and I both want is for you to subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating and a comment. Yes. <laughs> you can also DM us if you want with questions or topic suggestions. Reach out to us at act2writers at gmail.com, which is all spelled out, or on Twitter or on Instagram at act2writers. I am also there. On Instagram, at Story Thursday and Twitter at Tasha 3.0. I'm on Instagram. It's Josh Hallman and Twitter as Joshua Hallman. Dave, are you on any social media platforms? <laughs> I am, but I was not prepared for this moment. And I honestly yeah. don't know my handles off the top of my head. So don't don't worry <laughs> about it. It's good. I, I always freeze up. It's okay. All right, All right. So we have an episode we've actually been really excited about for a really long time. Yeah, I feel like we need to get a little more pumped up. I don't like I don't like us we need to get more excited for this where this episode is right now. I feel like we we chatted a little bit beforehand, got a little down on it about about the movie. I want to I want to come back to a high. There's no way to be down on it. We're talking about Die Hard with a Vengeance, which is Yeah, I'm not I'm not down on Die Hard with a Vengeance. I'm just down on the absurd comparison that you guys have been pushing for a week. <laughs> I mean, absurd is a really strong word, and I still stand by that this is the best Die Hard movie. And I think Josh has maybe changed his tune. Yeah, in the in, last uh, two hours. <laughs> in rewatching these movies for this episode, but I stand by it. Dave's going to argue pretty hard that the original Die Hard is better, and I think we'll see. Not just better, but one of the greatest movies of all time. So you're saying that Die Hard with a Vengeance is also one of the greatest movies of all time. <laughs> I do. I do. I am saying that. Okay. Yeah. Tasha's yeah. full of hot takes today. <laughs> I, I like it. <laughs> Tasha, you're going to just keep doubling down on everything. I am. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. And you know what? I, the reason we're not talking about Die Hard is because everyone talks about freaking Die Hard over the holidays. Not us, though. We, we go yeah. part three. So we're talking about the one that takes place in the summer. <laughs> the first dire movie did not take place during the Christmas season because it sets itself apart for a reason because it's so original and interesting. And mm -hmm. okay, well, it is. I, I let, let me also, I love Die Hard with a Vengeance. I feel uh -huh. like, I feel like because of the way that this has been framed, it's going to seem like I'm attacking it. Yeah. But I actually <laughs> love Die Hard with a Vengeance. But when put to it, when you have to defend Die Hard, Right, that's when you're, you're gonna throw Die Hard with a Vengeance. That's when the wolves come out. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, I feel like the way to do this because we this is a breakdown. We're gonna talk about from a screenwriting perspective why Die Hard with a Vengeance works or maybe doesn't, and according to Dave, why it's so good. Um, and then <laughs> I love Die Hard with a Vengeance. Well, why it doesn't <laughs> it, work? It, it it totally works. <laughs> There's just you're holding it to a very high bar. It's the best one. Okay. <laughs> Before we get into the breakdown part of it, though, I think how it sort of all came together, I thought was really interesting. Um, please chime in because I know, like, 
we've all kind of looked into different things about how these movies came together. Please, if you have anything to add, go for it. But this comes from um, some stuff that, you know, some interviews from Jonathan Hensley, who is the writer of Die Hard with a Vengeance. And I just thought it was really interesting how it became a Die Hard movie, which it was not intended to be. So Jonathan Hensley, before he ever wrote Die Hard with a Vengeance, he wrote A Far Off Place, which was a Disney movie with a very young Reese Witherspoon that took place in Africa. And then he was a writer on Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. And then he wrote this spec called Simon Says. And he says that he wrote this spec in 11 days in 1992, which would put him about when he's working on Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, I think. And he said it came to him because he's just in his apartment in Manhattan thinking about this boy that he hit with a rock when he was 10 years old. And this kid was pretty seriously injured. And what he'd done as a kid when he was 10, it gave him nightmares for months. So now as an adult living in Manhattan, he starts wondering what would happen if that had been a lot worse. Like if he had grievously injured this kid and blinded him or in some other way kind of ruined this kid's life. And then when he became a man, this kid came back for revenge. So Simon says the spec that he wrote picks up on a 35-year-old New York City cop when a psychopath starts just blowing things up in Manhattan. And unless this cop follows these particular instructions from the psychopath, he will continue to blow up things and just wreak havoc and death across Manhattan. So it's just this revenge movie. And he said it was a lot shorter than his script for Die Hard ended up being um, and just kind of more simple. So he sells Simon Says to Fox, which apparently was in this bidding war because Warner Brothers was going after it because they wanted it for like the basis for their Lethal Weapon 4 movie, which was obviously another big franchise going on at the same time. But one of the big reasons he said he sold it to Fox was because they told him, we love your script. We do not want to change a single thing in it. And in particular, Hensley was really passionate about the opening sequence, which I think is the strongest part of the movie, where you kind of meet this hungover cop who's given a task that is basically to go kill yourself in Harlem. <laughs> and that kind of starts this whole um, ball rolling of, of the, the riddles and journeys of the movie. And Fox is like, yeah, no problem. That opening is great. You've got it. So the deal gets made. And then he said in the first development meeting he had with all of the executives, like time to give notes, time to kind of talk about the plan for the movie. The first meeting, they tell Hensley, we want to change everything, including the opening of your movie. And also this Zeus Carver character you've created, we want him to be either white or Korean because that's what our numbers tell us will work. And Hensley puts up a fight about this, I think, as we all would, especially after being told that would that would be fine um so they simply fired him and they replaced him with another writer who would make those changes then hensley kind of talks about in vague terms how the script got into the hands of john mctiernan who's the director of die hard and it's kind of unclear but he basically got, got the script to john mctiernan who i think at the time was developing die hard 3 and die hard 3 was going to be on a boat and then he read Simon says, and he was like, oh, I want to do this one instead. And all that boat stuff that he'd been developing, that got moved into Speed 2, which he later ended up doing. Mm. So now John McTiernan is on board with Simon Says, but now they have to get Bruce Willis on board. So McTiernan sends it to Bruce, who, in one of those magical moments that I feel like is an exaggeration, like Bruce reads it within hours and calls back. 
which that has never happened to me. Has it ever happened to you guys? So like an actor, director, or producer, like read something is like, oh my God, I loved it so much. I just had to get back to you. No, you guys would definitely no. know about it. <laughs> oh, it's ridiculous. It feels like a lie. Um, but apparently that's what Bruce did. He said he's in. And so now Hensley's script, Simon says, is going to become the script for Die Hard 3, which they had been trying to crack for a really long time. And kind of like the pressure was on. The um, exec at the time, the studio exec, said that sequels tend to make 65% less money than the first movie. And the third movie, of course, that can usually be a lot less. And so they were up kind of with this uphill battle of how do you do a third installment? And it was really about, okay, you already know who John McClane is. How do you create the most insane situation to put him in that people like can't wait to go to the theater to see what this crazy new situation is that John McClane has to survive? So that was sort of the studio's approach to Die Hard 3. Hensley has some really interesting stuff where he talks about the task of not just having to rewrite the spec, but also having to completely reconceptualize it to turn it into a diehard movie. And he had very little time to do it because they were on a schedule. They had to get this movie made quickly. And he said, like, the, the best questions came from Bruce Willis himself, where he was like, cool, you have this psychopath, but why is he out for revenge? Why is he blowing stuff up? Why is he after me? <laughs> and yeah. At first, Hensley like tried to stay true to his original inspiration. So he like tried to come up with ways that John McClane as a kid hurt some guy named Simon. And he just like couldn't make that work. It just wasn't interesting or engaging enough. And so he said at 5 a.m., he's waking up in the morning and he just immediately comes up with this solution. And he calls McTiernan and he's like, How would you like to do a sequel to your? original Die Hard movie? Would you be willing to make that connection in three? What if Simon is actually Simon Gruber, the brother of Hans Gruber, whom John McClane threw off of Nakatomi Plaza in the first movie? And McTiernan was like, yes, like that's amazing. Figure out how to make that work. So now he had who the villain was, but the problem became his original Simon Says script, which again was very simple, just a basic revenge movie against a cop. Now with like this diehard parameter felt too simple. It wasn't interesting enough to watch McClane go through this for two hours. So he started developing this with McTiernan and with Fox. He came up with this idea that the revenge story is actually just a cover for a heist. And that to me is what makes this movie so cool <laughs> and makes it the best uh, diehard um, because I think that that's so clever. But it's copied from the original diehard. That is and the heist. No, that is an actual heist that they're doing. Yeah, but they... they There's no revenge uh, mission. I, I don't want to sidetrack us here, but they, disguise <laughs> it as a, but they, they disguise it as a terrorist attack. And then it's like a reveal that it's like, oh my God, it's just a heist. Like they do the whole thing about like requesting that all these political prisoners get released and the FBI is like, what the fuck are these guys talking about? But I think the difference is, and I will preface this by saying I have not seen Die Hard for many years because it's not my favorite, but I think you find out pretty early, you do, you find out pretty early that they're going after the $640 million of bearer bonds that are in the vault. Whereas in Die Hard with a Vengeance, you, the audience, and then McLean, by extension, don't find out that it's actually a heist until like midway through the movie. That's true. But it, I think that it's still using the same device as the bad guy is disguising a heist as something else. 
I, yes, I would but, agree. But the vice is used differently. And that's what I think makes Die Hard with a vengeance brilliant is because the heist is on the audience in a way. I have some notes about the heist, but obviously I won't get ahead of myself. Okay, uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> I just, sorry, I just want to go through kind of how he and like some of the struggles he ended up having and just trying to move his spec into Die Hard land just because I think it's an interesting screenwriting thing. So, okay, they came up with this idea. The revenge is just a cover for the heist. But the next problem was what the hell are they stealing? And Hensley has no ideas, none whatsoever. And one day he's walking through the Met Museum and he's like, what if they were stealing art? There's like billions of dollars worth of paintings here. That could be cool. And for like 48 hours, he was like all in on this art heist. But then he started thinking about, well, it's kind of not cool to see villains walking out with art. <laughs> like it just feels he said like it felt lightweight just not that interesting so they went back to the drawing board and around this time he's just happens to be reading about how all of the gold that the u.s has is not actually at fort knox it's in the federal reserve building in manhattan and mctiernan was like that's a cool idea but that's impossible to steal it's just completely impractical and um it's impossible to do that in a city in new york like no one's going to buy that. But Hensley started doing calculations and he was like, okay, you're right. It would take 480 dump trucks to carry out all of the gold bullion in the Federal Reserve. That's unlikely. But what if we do 14 dump trucks? Like that's enough that the audience would buy this. It's not too much for the visuals of the movie. So he convinces McTiernan to go for it. Meanwhile, he's also reading by happenstance about this aqueduct that's being built, which is the biggest public works project ever attempted in the U.S., in New York. And so the problem of, well, how do they get these 14 dump trucks off of Manhattan now is solved by this reading that he happens to do in the New York Times. So now he has a plan for how to make this movie logically work. And it was so good that actually, like, Josh, you had this story. How, yeah. <laughs> like, at one point, uh, he actually, Hensley actually gets a call from the FBI. Yeah. And the FBI is like, so how did you know all this about the vault and under the basement and the aqueduct? Because the FBI had to read this script as part of just the approval process of being able to film in New York city. So the FBI reads it and they're like, how did you know that they yeah. had this weakness? And Hensley was like, I went to the federal reserve and they literally brought me down to the vault and showed me this. And I know what the halls look like because they showed me the cages and the hallways that this takes place in. I know there's a subway tunnel next to it because they showed me the plans of how this is all like they showed me. And then I only know about the aqueduct because I read the New York times and the FBI was like, well, fuck, we have a serious security problem here. And Hensley said that they were less worried about people robbing gold and more about like an, some kind of incursion in Manhattan from like actual terrorists. So Hensley's script was like this blueprint for the FBI to kind of patch holes in New York's security, which I thought was really interesting. So that's it. That's I'm done. That's the making of the screenplay. So it did more for national security than original Die Hard did. <laughs> I don't know what to say. That was fucking awesome. I was going to jump in, but I feel like I have thoughts, but it'll sidetrack us a little bit. I feel like we start breaking down. These pre-story, like pre-breakdown stories, are my favorite part. <laughs> the lethal, we the lethal weapon one was crazy. Lethal too. weapon one was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think what we should do is like go very generally, kind of act by act, and please interrupt me with your thoughts. Please, Happily. I'm begging you. 
Yeah, definitely. But just to kind of give the, the breakdown some, some structure, um, because what we find interesting about breakdowns and the reason why we do them is because every time we watch a movie specifically to understand how it ticks, I think we all learn something, even though it's a movie we've seen a million times. And that was kind of the case for me for Die Hard with Vengeance. Um, all right. So act one. Yep. We're in New York as it's waking up, life's going normally, and then boom, there's this huge bomb that explodes in the middle of the city. And we immediately cut to police headquarters, everyone's freaking out, and then this guy named Simon calls, and he asks for John McClane, using these kind of nursery rhyme ways of speaking. Yeah. And he's like, if John McClane doesn't do what I say, there's going to be another big bang in a public place. Interestingly, Hensley said the nursery rhyme thing came because, like, he originally, of course, was doing Simon Says, which was about kids who had beef when they were young. And so he thought it made sense for Simon to use kids' nursery rhymes when he's taunting this cop. And so when he was rewriting this for Die Hard, he asked McTiernan, hey, should we keep the nursery rhymes thing or do you think it works anymore? And McTiernan was like, yeah, let's keep it. It's kind of interesting. And I think kind of at the end of the day, it added interesting depth that was kind of unexpected where there's a couple moments I think in the movie where Sam Jackson who plays uh, Zeus is kind of partner in the movie knows one of the nursery rhymes that Simon is is giving because he has kids or he's been around kids a lot and McLean who has kids but is a terrible father knows nothing about these nursery rhymes and like can't put the pieces together so it feels like accidentally it sort of added this depth of character yeah he's even like don't you have kids you, like make the comment like that at one point. <laughs> which by the way i forgot at that moment that like he he did have kids you completely forget that he's a dad because he's so terrible at it i i think they're terrible at bringing it up like it it's not even you just forget about it it doesn't it, his character doesn't matter it's just always his wife yeah yeah that's true it's always his wife I, I had never looked at that before as like revealing depth of character though that's that's interesting to me it had always just been like part of the hook you know it's like mm -hmm. the the riddle the riddles that are part of the the bombing i'm sure it wasn't meant to be a character depth but, no but no but you're 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 right now like and and thinking back about it that's interesting yeah are you gonna sway me here I, this is the beginning i'm real excited <laughs> oh god <laughs> All right, so Simon calls the police chief, find McLean, and they do find McLean. And there's actually this really great, I think the intro to McLean is so good. And this was, again, from the original spec that Hensley wrote, where we're in a van and we get all the reaction shots of the cops as they're looking. That is my favorite part of the scene. Is It's like the looks of horror on their faces. <laughs> they're so disgusted by what they see in front of him. And then you reverse and McLean's just like sprawled out on the floor. He's completely hung over. He's like in the same clothes he wore in the first movie. <laughs> He's asking for aspirin. We get some backstory about Holly and the kids here. Um, and what's cool, I think, about this setup and this intro is that McLean and the cops, they're gearing up for whatever Simon told them to do. But we, the audience, don't know what that is. All we get to see are reactions. So, like, for example, McLean is like, cool, all right, I'm going to do this, but where's my backup going to be? When I need you, when shit goes down, where are you guys going to be? And they're like, uh, according to Simon, we have to stay really far back so you don't have backup. And we see that this upsets McLean, which we know McLean is a badass from Die Hard 1 and 2. And if he's upset, like, we know that he's probably pretty fucked. And so we see him get out of the police van. He's in his boxers. He's wearing this Wait, really... Yeah. You're, you're forgetting something very, very important, which I yeah. love in this scene. 
is that he talks to the his buddy and he's says something about the badge number. He's like 69.91. Oh, that's that's what I always bet on with the lottery, which ends up paying off a lot later. And I mm-hmm. loved it because it's the perfect setup and it does so much work. Keep going, Tasha. Yeah, no, that's genius. That's, <laughs> that's a good, that's a good point. Cause it's super casual. You don't even flag it at all. It's awesome. So he come, comes out in his boxers. He's got this really offensive sign and he's in Harlem. Sam Jackson spots him, saves him from getting his ass kicked and they kind of run off together. And because they do that and they wind up back at the police station, Simon calls in and he's like, that guy you picked up in Harlem, now he has to stick with you because I, I want to fuck him up too. I want to jump in one more time here just because I I, I've, I love the setup of this movie. Like I love like the first, yeah. you know, 15, 20 minutes of this movie. You meet Sam Jackson around like the eight to 10 minute mark, I think. But what was so cool about it is like, you understand that Sam Jackson's this very compassionate person. He has these nephews. He's like, hey, why do you go to school? Who's going to take care of you? Nobody. Like you have to look after yourself, yourself only. I love that element about Sam Jackson's character where he is like uh, the protector and he's a very capable individual and you understand that mm-hmm. right off the bat with him. Yeah. He, he's like a man of very high moral standards. There we go. Yeah. He's anti John McClane, basically. He's anti. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And McTiernan actually... Uh, apparently very deliberately made him his sort of costume design look like Malcolm X so that he mm. kind of gave off this that exact vibe that you're talking about. A very powerful man, but also a very moralistic man. Interesting. Okay, so okay, they're in the police so station. They're in the police station. Simon gives them another task and is now requiring Sam Jackson Zeus to participate in this. But there's this interesting added obstacle where Sam Jackson has no interest in being a part of this shit. He's going home. Thank you very much. And I think a lesser writer would have just, now you're together and let's go embark on act two. But there's a there's an obstacle here where <laughs> McLean has to lie in order to get Sam Jackson to stick with him. And the lie hits on what you're talking about, Josh, which is, look, the the bomb we found, that was in Harlem. That's in your hometown. Like people you love and care about are gonna gonna suffer if you don't help me. And that kind of Moral center is what draws um, Sam Jackson to join in on this really ridiculous kind of quest. I also love that scene because I feel like that's a scene where we see McLean kind of like get his mojo back, like mm-hmm. in the sort of back and forth on the phone with with mm-hmm. Simon. That's when we sort of the, that real sharp McLean like wit comes comes back. Yeah, that is the fun stuff. You Whenever he gets on a phone with the bad guy, that's the stuff mm-hmm. that's always, you know, is going to be awesome. Where he really shines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's I think, is our break into Act 2. I don't know about how yeah. you guys feel. That feels like the break. I, I agree. Yeah, I, think, well, I think once he gets Zeus on board, right? Mm-hmm. That's like, because that, then they're off. But there there's a couple things that were set up in this uh, police station, which I just need to mention. Yeah, go. John pushes Simon so much that he starts to stutter. Mm-hmm. These are all character things. Mm-hmm. About yeah, to bring up. no, this and is I, awesome. And, and like, I thought that was really cool because it was like, once McLean got on, it's almost like a tip, like, oh, this is this is the guy that you're after. And the other thing is, you know, there's that therapist character in the scene. Mm-hmm. He basically does all the exposition for Simon. And mm-hmm. he starts saying, oh, this is a man who doesn't care about money. Did you hear how he responded when you brought up money or whatever it is? And actually, as someone who's working on an action script where you just kind of have this bad guy, he's like Jaws already, you need someone to do what that therapist did. It's like you have to elevate mm-hmm. the threat of the character. 
Oh, and the other big part of that is they show what the bomb can do, like that yeah. little tiny drop. Yeah. Of the the bomb, which apparently can be detonated by a a pager, a cell phone, a fucking like fax machine. Yeah, I did, I did not understand the science behind that at all. Yeah. But it, this thing could be detonated by a, like a phone book, and you're like, oh my god. And I love where the 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 bomb expert guy with the glasses just throws it into like the crowded bullpen. Yeah. In, in, in the police station. They just look at him and McLean just sits yeah. there. He's like, okay, so we have to do this. Like he just threw a bomb in a police station. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yes. So that is our act one. And you know, everything now, you know, all the characters, the dynamics, you got the therapist telling us about Simon, you get a little stutter. You think, you know, the stakes, but here, I mean, that's the thing too, is because the character, it's sort of a twist on the character of the therapist because we're kind of used to that being the guy who gives us reliable diagnosis of our villain, but he actually leads us in the wrong direction where mm. you, you hear that's how he true. responded to when you talked about money, he's not interested in money at all. And that's so true. we're on this ride for the revenge story. Oh, So yeah. really the reason that why this movie works is because the NYPD's psychologist is incompetent. <laughs> yeah, they suck. NYPD <laughs> sucks. <laughs> They yeah. got a better therapist to solve this real quick. Can I just say one more thing about this movie, which I'm going to bring up a few more times throughout this breakdown? There are so many quirky ass characters yes. and just like legit like character characters where you just you're looking at them and you're like, what the fuck? This is a weird. I, I'm person. sure we will get to this guy later, but <laughs> I was shocked by how little of screen time Jerry gets. Because yeah. I have such fond memories of Jerry. Yeah. Jerry, such who knows like character. the president, he knows the routes, yeah. he knows everything. He's anyway. Jesse okay. Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry, Tasha. I actually, I, about that, because I'm always really fascinated by that. And I think I forget to really give those minor characters who are who are there to just serve a purpose in your story to give exposition, the bomb guy to throw the thing and you know you forget that if you make if you highlight something just take one characteristic and make that really interesting then that character becomes something else and yeah, i remember absolutely. this the first time i heard someone do this was i was watching of all things like a rom-com and um, i was watching the commentary on it because i loved it so much and they had a scene of a valet guy who who took you know took the main character's car and drove it off. And they're like, you know, we, we really wanted to give this guy some character, even though he's only on screen for like two seconds. So what we did is we have him get in the car and then you see for a second him like moving the seat like really far up because he's so short. And it was just like a small laugh, but it like gave that valet guy some character. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then completely forgot it and never did it in any of my scripts. But this is a really good example <laughs> of where they do that really well. <laughs> All right, so we get our first riddle at the top of Act 2 where we're mm -hmm. at a payphone and there's a bomb in the trash can. And you have to call me back in 30 seconds with an answer to this riddle or you die. And Zeus, our Sam Jackson, he is clearly the brains of the operation while Blue Collar McLean kind of doesn't know shit about riddles or math. Um, but this ends up being a joke. They have failed but there's still no bomb in the trash and you get Simon laughing on the phone. And then he gives them the real problem that there is a bomb on the number three train. It's a little bit of a speed moment here where you gotta, if you evacuate the civilians, they're gonna blow the bomb, et cetera. And so now we get what I think is an interesting version of a high speed chase scene where we're in a cab and it's not totally a chase scene because there's no one chasing them. 
I had the same exact thought in watching it last night because it's not like there is no chase. I there guess it's, no a, it's 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 a race against time. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there's a ticking clock with, with with a lot of obstacles. Yes, like a and lot. So, of, yeah. yeah, the fun of it is like I guess the adrenaline of the the chase, but also how clever McLean and Zeus can be about getting around traffic and various urban obstacles. Oh my God. This is one of, I still think about one of the moments to this day when I'm driving in traffic, I'm like, there's so much traffic call the, uh, uh, wasn't it a fire truck or ambulance or whatever it is. It's like, mm -hmm. call it and traffic. Well, I think about that when I'm sitting in traffic. I, al I also think about that every time I'm sitting in traffic <laughs> or like anytime that an ambulance passes by, I'm like, Oh, I can pull a McLean and just follow. Yeah. How interesting you know, that there. this moment from Die Hard with a Vengeance has stuck with you for so long in such key situations, Dave. I know. It's not like it's not like any moments from the original Die Hard <laughs> stuck with me. I'm I'm reconverting. It's better than the first. <laughs> okay. Come on, board, Josh. It's really fun to be here. We're not even halfway in. Let's wait till we get to Act Three. All right, uh, all right. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> we can stop the podcast at about the break industry, I think. <laughs> All right, so we get this chase scene that has these stakes that have nothing to do with someone chasing you, which is great. Then we get to the subway scene <laughs> where McLean does this crazy-ass stunt where he jumps onto the subway car, he finds the bomb. It still blows up, but because he was there and was able to kind of throw it out of the car, he saved everyone's lives to only minor injury. So this is kind of, this is basically act two. Point one, right? McLean and Zeus are pairing up. They get a false bomb riddle at the payphone, race to get to the next riddle. Big action sequence where McLean and Zeus save the day. Mm -hmm. Where do you think the midpoint is? It's somewhere around here. Where do you guys feel like it is? So I, in watching it last night, I was thinking the same thing, that it was some, that it had to have been somewhere around there. But then I started to pay attention to just where we were time-wise in the movie. And it actually lined up that I think the, I'm pretty sure the midpoint is when McLean, there's that moment where McLean realizes that it's a, that it's a heist, mm. which comes a little bit later. Yeah. Where he, there's a kid on the bike and he's like, you know, look around, all the cops are doing something else. It's, I forget what he said, the line is, but he's like, it's fucking yeah. Christmas, whatever. And, so, uh, and, and like the camera does that, like pan around McLean as it all comes mm -hmm. together in his head. And he's like, we're in wall street. Yeah. It's a heist. Cause I feel like that's where then the movie kind of turns and, and their mission changes. I actually think it's when they take over and like the Fort Knox, the, the vault mm -hmm. or whatever is taken over by Simon. They get everything and the trucks start driving away. But I agree with Dave. I actually also was like, is this the midpoint of the movie? Like when the kid conveniently says there's no cops here mm -hmm. i don't know what that you could still um, city hall yeah that's that that's the line you could steal city hall mm -hmm. but in uh, not to get too far ahead if i don't know where we are in this but like in there's a portion where it just jumps into simon and his crew for like 10 straight minutes and it mm -hmm. just shows you know you see him for the first time and then from that moment on it's him stealing everything breaking into everything and like the plan is in motion and they get everything and then they're off and, mm -hmm. and they're off and moving. Is that before or after when McLean realizes it? It's before. So I actually feel like that is the midpoint when 
there's sort of a POV shift in the movie. And just before this moment, right after the subway explosion, there was a moment where I thought was the midpoint where McLean and Zeus are pulled into this van in order to talk to the FBI. That's what I initially thought was the midpoint also. Yeah, because that feels like a big turning point where the Mm -hmm. FBI reveals that Simon is actually Simon Gruber, this brother of Hans Gruber. That's why he's out for revenge. And minor thing, not talking about midpoint, but just like the way it's shot, I thought was interesting. Um, Hensley kind of talked about this moment about how in his script, this was super straightforward. It was just an expositional scene to get this moment out. But all the power dynamic stuff, which I very much remember about this scene um, between the FBI, the NYPD, how McLean kind of figures out that the quiet guy in the back is actually the FBI boss. And Mm -hmm. um, all of that was from McTiernan. It was just his instincts on the day. That's what he wanted to do with this scene, which I thought was just pretty cool. So I kind of thought this might be the midpoint where we reveal Simon is not actually, um, or where he is actually Hans Gruber. Um, But I think it is the next sequence. I think it is when the, everyone kind of peels off because Simon, Simon calls while they're in the van and says, there's a huge bomb in one of the New York City schools on this far side of town. You have to figure out which school it is by 3 p.m. or the bomb goes off. Or McLean and Zeus can go to these various tasks I'm going to set for them. And if they complete those tasks, then I will stop the bomb. Um, so you have to do one or the other. And I think there's there's an interesting way that they, they lock us into this story here. Because the 3 p.m. deadline means that they can't get enough manpower by 3 p.m. to like help with this search. So that's what causes them to have to pull every New York City cop off the streets to do this task because the FBI can't get their people here in time. Can I say one more thing about this scene? Yeah. What I realized is this movie does really well, I think, is having these confined moments like in the beginning when they're sitting in a van and they're sharing all this information, but it's still really interesting somehow. Mm -hmm. And also while they're in the van, Simon says, basically, I can see you. I can hear everything you're doing. So the threat is elevated even more. It's like they can't do anything without Simon knowing how the fuck are we going to communicate? I think that was just my my one other note. But yeah. I, I, I did want to comment on the guy in the van. He's sucking on his glasses the entire time. Mm-hmm. Fucking least favorite character in the entire movie. <laughs> not, it's not even close. I, I just that's another weird character quirk that I just can't forget. That's funny. <laughs> but yes, I'm sorry continue i I do think the argument that i would make against that being the midpoint is that mclean and zeus being sent to wherever that next stop is as the police and everything are mobilizing because there's a bomb in the school at that point mclean and zeus's mission it's still a trajectory of the same mission going going along these stops playing these games that simon is leading them on Whereas when McLean realizes that it's a robbery, that completely changes mm-hmm. th- their journey for the rest of the movie. This is what I think is so interesting about this movie is because it like it separates what the hero of the movie is doing, McLean, with what the audience is watching. Like there's two different experiences going on in the same movie, and I feel like the midpoint for McLean is what you're describing. It, the whole his whole day changes at that moment, but for the audience, the whole moment. The whole movie changes in this next moment where as the cops and the FBI are going about their separate ways to go to the school and find the bomb, you pan up or you cut up to this shot on a building. So we're watching down on them. We're now separating ourselves for the first time from the cops. And now we're in Simon's point of view and we realize he is 
fucking with them. This is a game. And his real mission is the Federal Reserve, which is what the next 10 minutes are, as you described. And that happens right at the 50 minute mark. It's that is the technical midpoint. But I do feel like there's two midpoints of this movie, depending on where you're experiencing it, if that makes sense. Totally. Mm -hmm. Which is maybe why the third act feels very faulty, because of that mechanic. Maybe. Which we can yeah. talk about. I think there's something interesting to being ahead of McLean here. But I know that, you know, we get notes about this all the time. Like, the audience is ahead of your hero. The audience is ahead of your hero. You're like, that shouldn't be the case because then your hero feels dumb. I never thought McLean felt dumb. I just thought that the villain seemed really, really smart. And that was really mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, though, is they're only ahead of McLean for a little bit like it's only a few minutes that it's a long sequence of them breaking yeah. in but then mclean figures out pretty quickly and then now it's us watching and like okay mclean's now chasing them because he knows something is going on yeah so it's not a complete confused character the entire time i agree and the and also to argue that this is the midpoint there's a total shift in the way the movie functions as well and that now from now on we're intercutting between McLean and Zeus and then also Simon and we didn't do that before this moment mm -hmm. but I think McTiernan talks about this in a really interesting way because for him and you can see this in the first Die Hard 2 where he said the robbery should be joyous it should be really fun to follow the bad guys and in Die Hard like when they're first doing their shit like there's a lot of laughter they're smiling they're like ribbing each other a lot there's it's a really fun to follow the bad guys and he said that in these movies, he sees the villain as the protagonist and Bruce Willis is the antagonist. So the villain. Mm, that's crazy. It's really cool. And that's why I think we're struggling with like the midpoint and how this story kind of structures because it's very different where he's like the villain is trying to do something, something that's really fun that we're kind of on board with. And Bruce keeps getting in their way. And because McLean refuses to get out of the way, the villain starts to get frustrated because he's just one guy. <laughs> and, you know, you have this team of bad guys. How can just one guy stand in our way? He's a guy who has no shoes and the OG. He's the suspended cop with a hangover in three. He's not a guy who's particularly awesome. He's just an obstacle that refuses to give up. The way he framed both Die Hard and Three was that it's a story where the bad guy is the one with the agenda in the movie, and he's the one who wants to do something, and your hero is is the antagonist to that. So I just thought that was a pretty interesting way yeah, to the script a bit. It's very true, too. And I think yeah. maybe that's part of why McLean doesn't feel like a failure, even though we're ahead of him, because we're having... It's so exciting to watch Simon break into the Federal Reserve and be so clever and kind of fuck over McLean that we... We're having so much fun that we sort of don't care that we're slightly yeah. behind him because that's part of the fun that we're buying into is that this guy is so intelligent. He can even trick McLean. Yeah. And McLean's still accomplishing things along the way. Yeah. He's not just being very passive. And you're right. Like right after the sequence is, is, an, is when McLean figures it out. So he's not behind the ball for very long. And right. he's the one responsible for figuring it out. He is very active in putting the pieces together, which really helps. Yeah. So now we're in, Josh and I think is Act 2.2, um, mm -hmm. where it's the park riddle, which again was like one of the more memorable moments for me in this movie, where you have to fill up the water jugs with exactly four gallons of water 
And Hensley said that this was actually a question he got on an exam once in college and he had no idea how to solve it. So he I still don't understand it. I've seen this movie fifteen yeah, times and I still do I. don't understand it. Neither. <laughs> um and then you have this 65-minute mark that Dave is talking about where after they solve this water jug scene, McLean grabs a kid who's on the street who's just robbed a corner store and is like, what the hell are you doing? And he's like, there's not a cop to be seen. You could still City Hall. And from this moment, Hensley says, this is, this is the moment where his original spec diverges and becomes a diehard movie. So he had mm-hmm. written all of this up to that point. And now it's McLean figuring out what the hell Simon is up to. It's now McLean being really smart. Before it was Zeus. Now it's McLean, who's now in his element, right? Like he's he's not in his element with the riddle shit. He's in his element when he has to chase someone and figure things out that way. So he's getting back into his old kind of OG diehard self where he's really violent. He's really comfortable with violence. And there's something kind of funny about the violence, like the elevator scene at the Federal Reserve. I will say it definitely, and I actually noted it, It that's where it does, you can feel that shift where it turns into the Die Hard movie. He walks yeah. in, and even our our midpoint Tasha, where they steal Fort Knox, like that feels like, almost like I could argue the beginning to a Die Hard movie, mm-hmm. if that's where it started, and then McLean's on the on the trail. So I yeah. definitely, I definitely feel that, and I actually love it when he starts going into places. Feels good. Yeah, me too. Because also up until that point, there had not really been any shootouts or anything. It was yeah. all riddles and bombs. Yeah. And then, yeah, the, I feel like the elevator scene is is really the uh, first first big gunplay. And that is has always been like one of my favorite scenes in the movie. That's yeah. one of my most memorable scenes. Why is it one of your favorite? Well, the payoff that Josh brought up the setup where he sees the badge number and he real it clicks in his head that that cop who had that badge, his buddy's probably dead. These mm-hmm. are bad guys. And then he like brings up the, you know, the lottery. He's like, hey, you guys played the lottery last night? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's got that McLean, that McLean witty energy. Mm-hmm. And then just quickly explodes into brutal, bloody violence. <laughs> I just love, <laughs> I love how McLean just shoots people. Like, <laughs> I, I had the same thought. I was like, he would definitely, like, he does not give a lot of, <laughs> police commands no. or ask questions no he shoots first a lot yeah he's like, like there's the worry scene, about this later the scene uh where he's in the tunnel with yeah. the trucker and that there's he walks up and before he he i don't even think he says like he says like one word to the guy he starts telling a joke yeah yeah and then he just shoots them to death <laughs> what, what 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 if they weren't bad guys you know what's interesting yeah. is there's a moment later on the the ship that they're on in the shipping containers and he just turns and shoots the, the German guy as the German guy is shooting at him. <laughs> yeah. He's like, Oh, what'd you say? And you're like, ha ha ha. That was funny. And then the other bad guy comes. He's like, he said, don't shoot. And you're like, Oh, like, Oh, McLean. Yeah. Like I was maybe not, <laughs> are you not the good guy? <laughs> McLean would definitely be in jail today. I think yeah. if, if this well, were the real world. So. Yeah. yeah. Die hard in a jail. Yeah. Die hard in jail. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, so we get the awesome elevator scene where he kills everyone. <laughs> McLean then figures out that they stole everything from the basement, right? He sees that it's been drilled into. And now it's really a chase scene after the dump trucks. And this yeah. is what takes them to the aqueduct where McLean realizes this is where 
they're getting out of the city from, which I think is brilliant. So now they're in the aqueduct and they're chasing after Simon. We get another callback, I think, to the OG where Simon radios his guys that McLean has shot in the van and is the one who answers instead of the bad guys. And he's just a total smart ass to him on the radio. Listen, listen, real quick. I noted this. One of my favorite things in just movies, but definitely action movies, is when the bad guy calls expecting to talk to his own buddy. And then the hero's like, yeah. fuck off. I have your walkie-talkie. <laughs> You're like, yes. It's always great. such a flex. Yeah. <laughs> it just never gets old for me. Yeah. And this, and I skipped over your guys' favorite sort of side character. The Jerry. Jerry, the driver. Like, yeah, I feel like if I saw Jerry out at a bar today, I would recognize him. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, Jerry. <laughs> oh, man, let's talk presidents. An issue that I have kind of with this movie is that I feel like there are a lot of uh, things that I ignore that I just kind of for, I'll let go for some reason. Like, for instance, I, I actually even feel like what we talked about earlier, the kids saying you could steal Fort Knox. I felt like that was a little convenient. And then all of a sudden, Jerry's like knows all of this really specific information, which is a really cool character trait, but also really convenient for the story. And I still don't fully understand why they were going to go to Yankee Stadium and why he needed to know the 21st president. I still don't know. I love that there's just an assassin in a luxury box in Yankee Stadium like seven hours before the game is going to start. Did they have tickets? People are cleaning. I I had a lot of questions about that. I had no questions about that. I completely bought it and understood The field crew was, yeah, the... They were landscaping the field, and then there's just a guy with a sniper rifle in the luxury box. Yeah, but this is a, this is a crew who just took over the Federal Reserve with cop costumes and whatever. Like they can get into Yankee Stadium. But another conve- another convenient thing, which really I really noticed this time was, and I laughed at, is when uh, McLean gets like expelled from the aqueduct by the water and yeah. he like shoots up out of the geyser. <laughs> yeah. And then Samuel Jackson just happens to be driving right past the geyser at that very second. Yeah. yeah. But like he had just been at Yankees, like they were completely separated. And then he just like pulls over and is like, McLean, get back in. So Hensley talks about this moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would Tasha. say to talk about the Yankee stadium thing for a second, before we get to the ridiculous like geyser moment, it does feel like I I also just watched it and was and understood it to be that was supposed to be the end game of the revenge plot, right? That was Simon's end goal with McLean. McLean was supposed to die at Yankee Stadium, end of story. But because McLean is smarter, he's now on the chase. But it does feel like a sidestep in the story where I feel like if I was reading the script, my note might be, can we take this scene out and figure out another way to, to do this? Well- I was just going to say, I feel like it should have tied to Hans Gruber in some way, shape, or form. Like, Yankee Stadium is so obscure in terms of this whole idea. It has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, Yeah. like, he's not even a Yankee fan, you know, or a sports fan. Like, does he talk about the Yankees at any point in the movie? Like, that's that's why I think it felt so out of left field. And then he's definitely not because he he, he does not know how many players are on a Major League Baseball roster. That's right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Minor sidestep failing. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Point Dave. <laughs> the way H- 
Hensley justifies the geyser moment. So what happens, I think technically in the story, uh, Zeus and McLean go to the aqueduct. They figure out McLean's going to drive into the aqueduct with his buddy Jerry. Hey, you Zeus, go figure out what this riddle is at Yankee Stadium and get back to me. Um, but meet me at such and such dam up ahead when you're done at mm. Yankee Stadium. Oh, yeah. And so there he's. Hensley says, yes, we've been getting a lot of criticism about how he just happens to be driving by right at this moment. But technically, we do set it up that he's heading in that direction and you just kind of have to have fun with it and let it go. That's his reasoning, which I don't know. If the chances weren't zero. The chances were not zero. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's interesting is I didn't bump on the geyser moment as much as you know what I bumped on was when McLean is running this like sniper sharpshooter is completely missing him. Like all the, when, you know, when the bullets are, you know, they follow, uh, Sam oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then McLean's running to the car and like these bullets are just, just errant, just all over the place. I was like, what the fuck? That was a sniper. That's <sighs> the, cl- I always think of like how in, you know, the star Wars movies, the stormtroopers fire a billion lasers yeah. and never hit anybody. It's like the yeah. classic action henchmen yeah. are terrible shots. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, anyway, anyway, Carry on. My question to you guys is what do you feel like is the break into act three? I'm not a hundred percent sure. I was going <laughs> to ask you. I honestly, I know it, I have a low point. What's your low point? It's not until they're on the boat where Simon gets John. That was my low point. Yeah. And I don't even know if that's right. I actually figured that that was the break into three, but, it, but I was not sold on it because it's, it's very confusing. Yeah. I feel like this. I feel like I feel like this is where the movie sort of goes off track a little bit, and yeah, becomes a bit anticlimactic. Yeah. So, what happens here is the McLean has followed them into the aqueduct. He does the whole walkie-talkie "fuck you, Simon, I'm coming after you" thing. Simon says he actually Simon gets pretty flustered here for the first time in the whole movie. And he kind of yells at his people and then they decide they're going to blow up the dam to drown McLean. And we get a kind of a ridiculous but fun action set piece where the water is taking McLean's truck and he's like kind of surfing on it. And then he jumps onto the ladder and then that's where you get the geyser moment. And now McLean and Zeus pair back up again. And now... There's a chase scene that happens with the sniper that you're talking about. They finally make it to a bridge where they see the trucks have made it onto a ship and a cargo vessel. And there's another action set piece to get onto the ship. And now it's a kind of contained cat and mouse sequence where McLean and Zeus are trying to find and kill Simon on board the ship. And Hensley has an interesting thing about this and where I think I feel like in the writing he was probably really struggling with act three as well and it really shows i think where he says that bruce willis's instincts was that he should actually be back in manhattan in the third act trying to save these kids from the bomb not in some ship trying to stop a guy getting away with gold because from an emotional standpoint gold doesn't matter the lives of children matter and that's what mclean should be addressing but hensley said he couldn't really figure out how to make that work even to this day, like he has, he just has no idea because the movements of the movie required that the bad guys get the gold bullion out of the city for it to feel satisfying. So his solve was just kind of like a bandaid where he ended up making the school bomb that they find. And it's really tense when they find it. And I think the intercut is really great here that it's actually a dud. It's full of 
pancake syrup instead of like actual whatever liquids bombs are made out of. And the real bomb is actually on the ship with McLean and Zeus. So maybe that's the third act twist. Yeah, maybe. I have I have a couple things I was going to ask yeah. you both. Well, first of all, I thought it was really interesting that the school was the same school with Zeus's nephews, right? Yeah. Which I just felt was somewhat necessary to connect the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I did wonder, it's just interesting hearing you say that, Tasha, because I thought you could remove the whole child bomb thing and still have the same movie. Like that was one of my thoughts was like, if I read the script, I would probably put the note, consider getting rid of the entire child thing. Like that's not really important. Well, I think that, I think that that is what gets the attention of like, that's what mobilizes the entire NYPD Mm. and all of the authorities in New York and thus distracts them from the heist. You're right. I take it back. That's true. It does feel like a missed opportunity that Zeus's nephews are there and Zeus plays no role in anything that happens at the school. So we, we find the bomb in the school right around when there's the car chase with McLean and the sniper. And then they're evacuating the school right around when we're jumping onto the ship. And, and uh, Hensley said that the biggest problem everyone had who was involved with the project was they couldn't figure out how to get our heroes back to Manhattan Mm. because that's where everyone felt like the, the climax of this movie should take place. Like, my question to us is how would we fix this problem to have it take place in Manhattan? Well, it's almost like it's a flawed movie. I think the third act is flawed. I'm not going to pretend to argue for that. It's too yeah. bad to even pretend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is a tough question. Why would we even want to go back to Manhattan? Because that's where the emotional danger is with the kids. So the question is, how would we get McLean back to Manhattan? Yeah. Well, I just, I feel like, and we've all been there. You write yourself into a a, a scenario that you just, it, there's too many strings that will be pulled. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think the way where you get McLean to make the decision to go back to Manhattan through this relationship that has grown between, this friendship that's grown between he and Zeus, and we have, you have a memorable moment an emotional moment where Zeus realizes that his nephews are in the school where the bomb is. And then McLean, you know, is focused on the gold, but he sees, he sees Zeus's emotional reaction to his nephews being in danger. And he decides to give up on the gold and go with Zeus to the, to the school in Manhattan. Does that work? Oh, I love that. You know what's really interesting about that? Because I think that actually works with the original ending that Hensley wrote and that they shot much better. Which So let's just say, do you, in that version, does he still go on the ship and get sort of tied to the fake bomb and all of that happens? But then after that, they go back to the school? I, I don't think so. I think he would go. I think I feel like it would almost happen like when they're, look, when they're on the bridge looking at the ship going away. McLean figures out how to get on the ship, Mm -hmm. but then Zeus is like, no, we have to go back to the school. My nephews are there. And McLean lets the ship go and goes back. And so then you have to, so then you have to come up with a whole new sort of climax where McLean, you know, gets, gets the bad guy. I don't, I don't know what that is, Mm. but strictly just getting him to go back to Manhattan, I think has to be based in in the emotional relationship between he and Zeus. 
yeah, I like that a lot. I like that a lot too. There's a really important moment on the ship, I felt, with the whole McLean Zeus connection when they're handcuffed together and Zeus is giving them shit and they have that like bonding moment where McLean says, you know, I lied about the whole Harlem thing and whatever. You know, it's that moment where the characters come together, they tell all their secrets, but they bond and they get a little closer. I feel like that would have to be moved up a little earlier in order for McLean to say, let's go save the kids. Yeah, because what you're bringing up brings up an interesting point, which is if you let the bad guy go, then there's no resolution to that story that feels really satisfying because I've been following that story. So yes, there's some an emotional connection with Zeus that's satisfied in going back to the school to protect the kids. But now I have this loose end that I'm not satisfied with. So I'm just going to pitch what he originally wrote. And then we can kind yeah. of talk about, because I think Josh, you're right, that there's almost a missing moment where um, Simon has both of them in his sights and is going to kill them they end up getting out of it somehow like that feels super key to the end of the movie but what happens in the original ending is the ship is it, it explodes per usual um all of new york city police department thinks that simon and his cronies are dead they're gonna start kind of um trawling the the bottom of the harbor to try and find the gold but mclean thinks they got away and he is suspended after this. He's, they think he's maybe even part of what happened. And yeah, so he's off the force. But somewhere in the story, Simon has thrown him that bottle of Advil. Because there's that great through line of Simon having migraines and um, McLean is hungover having headaches. And so he asks for that bottle of Advil. And on the bottom of the, the prescription for this um, headache medicine it says like a town or a specific pharmacy and so mclean however long later it's unclear months or years later tracks simon gruber to eastern mm. europe based off this little bottle prescription bottle to this little town and finds him just living off of the wealth from these this gold bullion and uh he, he's like drinking bourbon and smoking and eating richly and McLean shows up and he gives a riddle to Simon at gunpoint. And the riddle requires, um, it's kind of like a game of Russian roulette where there's a, a mini rocket launcher. I don't know anything about guns. So it's small. It's about this long. And McLean has taken off the sight on one side of it. So it's, you can't tell which side is the side where uh, the missile actually comes out of. So he puts that on the table. And like they twirl it around and it's a game of, of roulette. And um, basically Simon gets the quiz wrong, the riddle wrong, and he ends up blowing himself up. And that's how oh, it ends. And they shot this, they put it together, but eventually Fox and McTiernan believed it made McLean feel a bit like a psychopath. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, I'm not sure that I buy that McLean is like, going international yeah to get, I, I feel like he'd be like yeah i don't i don't give a fuck it's over exactly because <laughs> the thing about mclean is he really only kills for self-defense and to like get the job done he doesn't hunt people but right hensley's point of view which i agree with you i think is wrong it's a wrong take on mclean is that he felt that the head game that simon played in die hard with a vengeance really did fuck with mclean's head and it kind of made him go a little haywire. And this is why he does this at the end. 
So there's a version, by the way, with your pitch, where the kind of emotional conclusion is we save the, the nephews at the school, and then you get this kind of epilogue where he hunts down. I don't like it either. But also, like, why why did they feel like the bad guys had to successfully get everything out of Manhattan? Couldn't couldn't McLean have stopped them and then saved the kids? Yeah, I would think so. And I also just I feel like the whole third act just feels very anticlimactic to me because they get the bad guys get away. There's not a great showdown between he and Simon. Yeah. And then then they're like in what they're up in Canada or something. And then yeah, Nova Scotia. And then uh, McLean comes in on a helicopter and it kind of just ends very quickly. It yeah. Ends very quickly. Yeah. Um, there's the same like bottle moment where he he's able to again the ship explodes, uh, but Simon gets away in calling Holly, which I think is a really fun moment. He's finally getting through to his wife <laughs> to call her, and then he finds the prescription at the bottom of the bottle and drops the phone right when Holly picks up. So he never actually gets to talk to her. And then for some reason that gives him enough information to find the exact warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> that Simon is going to be at in Canada and there's a whole celebration. Simon's won, that it's all great. He's about to have sex and they interrupt him right when he's about to get laid. And then there's a joke about it and it sucks for Simon. And then they all hop in a helicopter and there's like a helicopter fight that McLean loses. McLean's now on the street and he is smart enough to think of bringing down some electrical wires onto Simon's helicopter. And that's how he dies. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah. Also, by the way, Tasha, that was amazing. Great job. Thanks. Breaking that down. Um, yeah, that's great breakdown. An another, like I was mentioning the conveniences with Jerry and the kid. Another one that I found thought was like, come on, was that the aspirin or Advil bottle mm -hmm. where it was like, what? Why does like, it even say? Like, I, I don't understand. Yeah. Why it even said the place. Those are just things that they just hit me the wrong way. It works and you kind of forgive it because you're in the moment. But then when you take a step back and you start thinking about it, you're like, wait, there was just a aspirin bottle that he left for him. Like, what the fuck? This is crazy that he just gives up his location. Yeah. Can, can I bring up one of my other issues with the movie? I guess. No, let's cut out and now. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, great movie. I love it. <laughs> But just in th and in thinking about it, like it's not like it's not this this is not something that I've ever been conscious about. But mm -hmm. having to think about it for the purposes of this breakdown, and also defending the original Die Hard, yeah, which is such a clean, perfectly told, efficient story where the external journey and the internal journey are just go hand in hand so well. What what is McLean's internal journey in in this one because i i think the the big thing that that with a vengeance is missing is that scene from the original where McLean is in the bathroom his feet are bleeding out he's a beaten man and he's on the radio talking to al outside and he's essentially defeated and you know bearing his soul to al about how he's been a bad husband and that mm -hmm. he wish he, he wishes that he could have done it better and that if he had another chance, he would he would be better. And there's nothing like that in this movie. Mm -mm. I feel like they I feel like they go for it in the scene where he and Zeus are tied to the pole with the bomb, and Zeus it, like is 
questioning him about his marriage but it's that's really just like a retread of what's covered in that scene in the original Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i was thinking about kind of the dynamic with zeus and i actually i think it works because sam jackson's so amazing and his character is like really fucking funny but i i felt like there was just there's something missing with like the connection to his relationship with Sam Jackson to his wife, if that makes any sense, like that internal battle that you're talking about, Dave, like for instance, this is a bad example. Him and his wife always argue about something and Sam Jackson and Sam Jackson and Bruce Willis have that argument. They're arguing about the same thing and it takes him the course of the movie to get over it. So he can then apologize to his wife there. Yeah. There wasn't really that moment. I would, I would concede on that. It felt to me like they weren't sure what they wanted that internal struggle to be because like it, it it feels like it's set up as if it's set up as if it's going to be something related to his relationship with Zeus. But then they keep bringing back Holly and his his, yeah. you know, how what kind of husband he is, even though that has absolutely nothing to do with what happens in this movie. No one cares yeah, about Holly. Yeah, it's just played as a joke at this point. I mean, I think the emotional heart is definitely meant to be the Zeus and McLean relationship and the culmination being when they're tied together and helping each other. And then the terrible climax of them in the helicopter together, kind of finishing it off because McLean's never, he's always been a lone wolf and they're fighting like cats and dogs for the first half of the movie. But that doesn't pay off very well. It would have paid off in Dave's ending in that version, where he yes, saves it would his have. nephews. Yeah, it also just doesn't feel like the thing that McLean has to get over in order to move on as a happy human being. Well, it's, no, it's not. And I wonder if that's a, a just an issue with the amazing setup that we actually do love. I mean, there is mm-hmm. a, he has been suspended, and in the the chiefs. Dialogue to Simon in that early setup scene. He does he does basically break down who McLean is right now, which you know he's estranged from his wife and his kids. He's two <laughs> steps away from being an alcoholic, and McLean's like one step one step away. He's he's not in a good space. But that then means that at the end of the movie, by being paired with Zeus, you have to see that he's in a better headspace. Yeah, and I don't think you see that right. There's no moment where he's like, I'm not going to drink or. I'm going to make a different choice. He does try and call Holly. I don't know if that's supposed to be the thing. Yeah, because he hadn't talked to her in a year or whatever. You know, and I think you've kind of said this, Tasha, but I think act one of this movie is like incredible. Phenomenal. Yeah, flawless even. And it 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 builds up so much and then it does kind of let down... I would say As act one and two are flawless. And then, uh, yeah, because we so. don't even know where the break into three is, wherever that is, that's where yeah. it starts going downhill. <laughs> yeah. Great buddy movie. Incredible action movie. The action in this movie is fucking incredible. Mm-hmm. It really toes the line of like the issues that I have with the next two Die Hard movies, which I pretend don't exist. And oh, just thanks. then extended to action movies today where it's like the action is so over the top that it's mm-hmm. unbelievable. Yeah. It's not here. It's not here. Yeah. It's great. Like it's, it's still believable, but there are a couple moments where it like kind of toes the line. Yeah. And you could sort of see where action movies were going. Yeah. When they, when they jump off the boat 
and there's yeah. like a sonic boom ripple effect and <laughs> yeah. like they just go down and then they're underwater and then the next scene they're above water and just being dried off yeah even when they get on the boat when they're like go like going down the zip tie like hundreds yeah. and hundreds of feet above this river right. and then it breaks and they just go swinging down yeah. and they somehow are like fine yeah <laughs> I think that's a really good point, Dave. This this actually does kind of this is a weird important movie that kind of bridges where action movies are going. Mm-hmm. Wow, I didn't even think about that. What a great movie! It's a great movie. Yeah, it's a great movie for about an hour. Yeah, hour hour. 15. No, for more than an hour. Yeah, I, I would almost say an hour. And, it's a it's a long movie. It's like two hours and eight minutes, I think. Yeah. So I'd say I it's a great movie for about ninety minutes. Yeah one more thing that I just want to say is I don't know if they intentionally avoided the Hans Gruber stuff and making a bigger deal that this was his brother, but I thought it would be really cool if they did bring up a little bit more of that connection Mm -hmm. and like the, the moment where he's like, say hi to your brother. And then he shoots him and whatever, like the, the dynamic between Hans Gruber and McLean in the first one were so incredible. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there was just a few missed moments where McLean could have like fucked with Simon and told him about his brother. And oh, by the way, this is what Hans looked like right before I threw him out of a fucking window or whatever, off of the building or whatever it is. I, I, there were a lot of moments where I was like, damn, I wish this was a little bit more of a direct sequel to Die Hard. Cause there's one moment where he does, and I really, really enjoy it, but having more would have been better where he's finally caught on the ship. And um, I think Simon says something about his brother and, uh McLean says yeah your your brother was an asshole yeah and there's like a look in Jeremy Irons face that like he just drops and that's very personal to him but then he starts smiling he's like you're right he was an asshole (laughs) (laughs) and that's really fun but you want McLean to double down on that and really get to him yeah dig a little deeper they go fly past it so quick yeah so that's our breakdown of Die Hard with Vengeance Josh where do you Josh where do you sit at the end (laughs) I mean, listen, if I'm, you know what? I'm going to just stand with Tasha. This is our podcast. We do this together. <laughs> okay. Whoa. I don't believe you, but okay. <laughs> Here, can I, okay, I'm going to adjust my opinion where I, oh. <laughs> I think, I think Die Hard is a better constructed movie, hmm. but I have a better time watching Die Hard with a Vengeance. So that's why it's a better movie to me. That's interesting. Of course. Oh, I mean, like, yes, Die Hard, it's a classic movie. It's it's better than Die Hard with a Vengeance. <laughs> <laughs> However, I think you're right. I actually do have a really, really good time watching Vengeance. And I think it's because of Sam Jackson, honestly. Mm. He's so entertaining to me. And like the shit that they go through is so much fun. Yeah, I love the riddles. I love how smart that whole villain story is. Mm-hmm. That's a perfectly acceptable answer. Okay. Wow. Thank, th- 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 thank you for for admitting <laughs> what what everybody who listens to this podcast knows. <laughs> this is where we stop the podcast. Yeah. And no one the day. <laughs> All right, I'm going to do a kind of cobbled together quote of the day. Oh. I always wanted to play McLean as a guy who doesn't want to do what he's doing. We've always constructed it so he has no choice. He has to jump off the building. The audience buys into that and they say, okay, that's also what I would do. 
Bruce Willis. <laughs> that's the that's the, the quote. It's he's defining. Another... He's self-defining who he is as John McClane. It's appropriate. Okay. I like it. Yeah. No, I like quote. it too. But you were like I'm cut, we're cutting together some. I quote. had to cut together we're... from other quotes. Oh, Anyways. I see. All right. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram, on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. And of course, Act Two is on both those things as well. I'm on Twitter. It's Joshua Hallman. Instagram, Josh Hallman. Dave, have you and taken Dave. this time to remember? <laughs> and Dave doesn't know. <laughs> I did not take the opportunity to look up, if you hang with me for one second, at D underscore Lev 24 on Twitter. <laughs> okay. Or Dave underscore Levinson 7 on Instagram. Seven. Give me all those followers. <laughs> all right. As always, the Act 2 podcast is a production of Act 2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist. Music by 414 Beg, which you can find on Spotify. Spotify.